Welcome to today's Entrepreneur Inspiring Stories from Outstanding Business People by FL Montreal. I'm Orla Johannes in Fidan Delmar and joined with Mike Newton this afternoon. And we have a great show lined up for you. Melissa Lambert will join us, the founder of Lambert Design. They make cruelty-free vegan leather bags. And we'll also chat with Juliana Papandrea, accounting and assurance supervisor at FL Fuller Landau on the topic of startup and small business accounting and payroll. Now, Mike, I don't know about you, but I love fashion. And we know the global vegan fashion market is a billion dollar industry. And I think more and more fashion brands are realizing the strength of vegan population as a potential market. And Mike, it's really great to see um, how Melissa Lambert gets her hands dirty. She is involved at every single level of business. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's a very interesting discussion. I think when you look, first of all, at the, the whole discussion of uh, the cruelty-free and the, the vegan side of fashion and how it has shifted away from being a fringe player to now really knocking on the door of the top designers to, to play in that market space. So I think that that's going to continue to be something that we're going to uh, to, to, to see change going forward. I, there will be some resistance. There's no doubt. I think as you start getting into the higher-end brands, especially as you get into high fashion and handbags and a number of other things. I think that people are still expecting to pay for, uh, you know, high-end leathers and, and everything. But I think that, I think there's a change coming. Uh, and it, it, I think a lot of the top designers are already starting to feel the pressure. Um, as far as being actively involved, um, you know, today's, uh, today's entrepreneurs always, you know, kind of been, uh, you know, we've had the, we've had the opening segments on our uh, thought leadership and, you know, this week, obviously no difference. Um, but I'm maybe shift away from uh, Harvard Business Business Review, which has is, is kind of been the staple for the last uh, number of uh, shows, and, and go to two articles this week. One of them, uh, Four Reasons Leaders Shouldn't Be Afraid to Do the Dirty Work from Fast Company, which I think feeds nicely into what you were just saying. And the other is, uh, you know, it's basically a talk to leaders, do your own dirty work and from Inc. Magazine. <laughs> and while they are, uh, while they talk about the same dirty work, they're, they're in two different uh, spaces. So I'm going to start first with, you know, the four reasons leaders shouldn't be afraid to do the dirty work. I, I love this article and, and I love the message that it sends. You know, maybe it's not about the article, it's the message, but we've all watched Undercover Boss. We've all watched, you know, shows about infiltrating, you know, the warehouse and being involved in things. Um, and that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is entrepreneurs getting into the trenches with a his or her team. You know, that ability, uh, you know, one of the one of the quotes that, that I found fascinating is as a veteran startup leader, I've yet to see a successful company with leadership that wasn't afraid to put on a hard hat, throw on some work boots and get right into the weeds of the most unenjoyable tasks. And, and I think that you know, this is this is a key element. A lot of people feel they're too important. Uh, a lot of you know people, especially when you come out of you know certain business school, you come out of certain environments. You you know, it's like, ha, that's that's what I hire people to do. Well, I'll tell you, if you want to learn, you know, a, a little bit of, of of creativity and learn a little bit of respect and create motivation for the team, what this says, if you're going to get in there and do the work with people, is you know, as the boss, I'm no important than you are, just different. And in this task, we're doing the same thing. I think it provides provides respect and it provides empathy for the team's tasks that they're doing. It, it you know, it, it raises the level that everybody's important within the organization. And yes, I think if you do it right, 
No doubt, there's always a mercenary side to things. The you know positive byproduct is that you can come out seeing how your team and how the procedures are performing. So the four points for the leaders basically is it shows humility, okay? And humility, in my opinion, builds trust and respect and cohesion and on and on and on. I think that ability to be real is certainly with the younger generation coming into the workforce today, this ability to be real is key. In a market where we're having a hard time maintaining and, and enticing people to work, I think, again, being real and that environment plays into it. It takes the focus off of your title. You know, when I walk into a room as managing partner, everybody looks at it as managing partner. If I walk in to say, okay, let's go do this together. Let's go, you know, whatever the task may be, I'm no longer wearing my, you know, one hat. I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a team hat. And I think that that's vital at the end of the day that it's no longer hierarchical when it comes to those things. I think it allows you to identify roadblocks and pain points. You know, if you're sitting there doing things and you see the process and you see the, pros the procedures, you have a tendency to go, hey, wait a second, maybe this isn't working right. You know that complaint that came across my desk last week? Maybe there's some validity to that complaint. And I think the last one is helps you sweat. You know, and, and, and you look at that and you say, well, you know, sweat equity is part of every business and you can't build a successful business without sweat equity. But often for leaders and the CEOs, this actually means sweating. It actually means, you know, rolling up your sleeves and doing the work. And that's good for the companies in any industry, from tech to finance to food. You simply have to use elbow grease. Uh, I grew up on a farm. You know, you were literally in it. OK, but that was part <laughs> of it. And, you know, it, and, and the elbow grease and learning to work, it puts it just puts the team at ease on a lot of things. And I think that goes a long way. But don't you find as well, Mike, it opens up better lines of communication with every level in the company because people feel more comfortable? 100%. You know, the, to walk in and say, you do this because I'm more important than you are. And whether that's true or not is irrelevant. OK, it doesn't need to be reinforced. It doesn't need to be thrown into your face in these things. So the communications are open. If I walk in and say, hey, you know, but, you know, next time you need to do something. Hey, wait a sec. I'll go move this box or I'll go do. It doesn't mean you're going to do it on a regular basis. And sometimes you're in a suit and it's not the most practical. And you know what? Sometimes that's the best time to do it because it proves a point. So the reality of being real and being true and being part of things with your team, I can guarantee you, you know, when you. When, when you go to bat, they're right there with you. And, and right. I think that that builds something that people who have never, you know, who anybody who sat, you know, in, in, in a glass tower is always going to have uh, missed something in terms of a relationship with their team. Um, the other article, which is, is, is doing your own dirty work, but in a very different manner from Inc. Magazine is, you know, sometimes the bosses and the owners have to do the difficult tasks. You know, you can't always send somebody out to, to, to do it. This article focuses on uh, an individual who was a cashier and a waitress and who loved what she was doing, but there was this notoriously difficult client. And instead of addressing it by the owner, he let the, the, the woman that was working, the cashier, constantly deal with her and constantly deal with her to the point where it made her cry. And, and you know, there, there, there's a point where you have as a business owner, you have to look at what's involved and you have to say, you know, the old adage that the client is always right. Well, I will agree to that to, to a point, but the client is always right so long as they're being respectful yeah. and they're not treating my team like garbage. Okay. And, and there's a very fine line. And yes, nobody wants to lose business, but I think keeping your team comfortable and understanding is huge. You know, I've, over the years, I have advised clients that, you know, they, they, 
to leave the firm. Why? Because I watched them disrespect repeatedly people within the organizations. I've pulled teams out from clients who were disrespecting the team on site. You know, that goes a long way in building the trust that your team knows you've got their back. And right. when you need them to have your back, they're going to be there. And if you're not going to do that, but only an owner can make that decision. And, you know, I can, you can't ask if they, I'm, well, that's it. You know, that person disrespected me. I'm pulling out. I mean, the reality is the owners, it's owner's business. It's the owner's decision. And if the owner chooses the client over the team member, that's their choice. And they live with the repercussions. You know, I, I have no problem forcing. I don't think people need to for, be forced to make a decision, but our society is really poor in being accountable for their own decisions. And, you know, and basically at the end of the day, to me, a moment of disrespect trash me all you want. I have had clients, you know, over the years that have told me what they felt. No problem. I'm a big boy. I'm going to push back. And if I feel it's necessary, my team is not supposed to do that. And I think right. anybody from an entrepreneurial standpoint, your leader needs to ensure that they are going to protect their team because you are always going to need somebody at that point to, to move forward. And, you know, and, and, and you look at it from an entrepreneurial standpoint and you look at it from, you know, our guest today having, you know, she started a small business and moving forward. Anybody yes. that started a business, there's always going to be this trade-off between saying this is intolerable behavior from people from the outside vis-a-vis -vis my team. And everybody needs to have a line and everybody needs to be able to address it. And again, I only think that the leaders and the owners can make those calls because it is their decision at the end of the day. If they choose to not do something, then you know what? Let them live with the repercussions. A hundred percent. And we're going to be chatting to an amazing entrepreneur. Joining us now is Melissa Lambert, founder of Lambert Design. They make cruelty-free vegan leather bags. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you very much. So first off, tell us what you do at Lambert Design. Well, I do a lot of things <laughs> because I'm the, <laughs> I'm the president. So it's going to be like about five years that I Funded the company and I do a lot of different things. I have, uh, I'm creating different kind of bags and accessories. We're looking for all the trend on the market. Um, I'm doing all the marketing strategy. And right now, our main goal is to develop the rest of Canada because we are really well known in Quebec, but we are developing in Toronto and Vancouver market. So there's a lot of uh, things to do every day. Very uh, each day is very different from the other one. So why don't we take a little step back in history here and 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 trying to figure from you know from where you came. I got to say, doing a little bit of research, I'm trying to find the link between the fact that you started working at Videotron and how <laughs> that helped you move forward into what you're doing today. So you might want to bridge that gap for me, please. Yes, um, I have a very strong background in marketing. So I was a brand manager at Videotron for about like seven years. And I had the idea of creating my own brand. And this is, uh, I was looking for what can I create something in the market, something new. And it all started when I was pregnant with my second child. And I was looking for a bag that was both chic and practical. And I didn't find anything on the market that was really nice. And for a diaper bag as well, there was nothing really fancy at the time. So I had this idea of creating bags that women would like to wear, even if they're a mom and you need to put a lot of things in the bag, it could be fashion. So I started create, created some three different models with a designer from Montreal. 
And this is uh, where it all started because uh, uh, when I was in the maternity leave, um, I had this goal. I for six months I was I I want to launch my website at first. This is what I did for you about like five years ago. And when I started this, I it was selling really well. I decided to open a pop-up shop um, downtown Montreal just before Christmas. It was the perfect timing. Uh, we had an amazing uh, Christmas sale. Uh, and after this, this is uh, when I, I decided to quit my job at Videotron and to be like fully in my business. And um, we also went at Dragon's Den here in Quebec. And uh, it was it's a really nice TV show. And it gives us a lot of visibility. And Labar was really well known, really fast after less than a year. And now after like about, it's going to be like, we're going to celebrate our fifth anniversary in September. And we have uh, about like 200 point of sales all around Canada. We are selling online and we also have a flagship uh, on Plateau Mont-Royal. So it's the only flagship for Lambert that we have all the bags, all the, the models and different colors. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's been a, it's been a five years really, really busy. Well, I truly admire you following your dream. That's exactly what I did. Um, coming back to your vegan handbags, you know, yeah. quality is very important these days. You know, people are looking for that. How difficult is it to mimic the quality of real leather when, you know, making and selling your products? Because people ultimately are you know, thinking about that when they go shopping for a vegan product, they want the, they don't want the leather, but they want it to look like the leather. Exactly. And this is what we are looking for all the new material. There's different quality in vegan leather. So we are always looking for the best quality, something that looks really, really similar. There are some people that are customers, it, they think it's leather and we're not, no, it's not real leather. It's a vegan leather, so it's important because it's not uh, it's not the same care. You just have to wash it with um, with water. You don't have to put any any products on like on real leather. So there is a lot of advantages uh, with vegan leather, and um, yeah, it's really important. Quality is this the first thing that we're looking for. What exactly is, though, vegan leather? What is the fabric you're working with? We are working with PU, so it's polyurethane. Uh, it's less uh, massive for the environment than PVC. Um, we are also looking for more, uh, if we, for more sustainable materials. We are launching this spring 100% recycled nylon. So it's a sustain, really sustainable and really easy to care. Uh, so yeah, we're looking for more sustainable uh, material. It's really important to have all those aspects and keep the same quality and keep a, an accessible price at the same time. It's, it's, it's a very interesting conversation when you get into the sustainability component of this, because there are, it's, it's really a philosophical approach to life and the way that you do things. And, and when I look at 
you know, being in fashion and I look at being sustainable, they're not always necessarily fully linked. So, you know, you started off, I guess, in the fashion industry. You, you're, you're, you're moving into the sustainable, sustainable component at this point. Would you consider yourself still a fashion-driven, motivated person trying to find the right alternative in the sustainability market? Or have you now kind of merged your two philosophies or your two values into one? Yeah, we're trying to, to merge yeah, the philosophy because it's really a challenge, I think, for every company and fashion industry uh, to look all the sustainable new material, but it's a lot, it's really expensive. So the consumer needs to be ready to pay this price. If you do it and there's nobody is buying it, you're going to waste it. So there's no point. So it's really to find the sweet spot, like the right compromise, the right product at the right price and the right material. So it's a really, really tough challenge. And I think that even if we're uh, a new company, it's been only five years, we're a challenger. And we're looking for like digital uh, vegan letter, new, there's new material. There's one, it's called VGI, it's from Italy. And we're looking to launch a collection in this material this year. So I think we need to be always pushing yourself and innovate. I hate to use the term disruptor, you know, when it comes to sustainability, but I, I think the fashion industry, it, it has certainly become a disrupt, disruptor in the way, you know, you're doing business and how you want to do business. And I think that the, the price points are hugely important. I mean, it's nice to say that, you know, you want to be sustainable, but if you can't make a business out of it, and at what point does that, you know, find the, that, that equal balance? How do you, how do you determine uh, your pricing when it comes to dealing with this? And how do you find is to go back to Orla's question before you're, you know, the, the whole discussion of real leather comparable in vegan leather, but a price point that may be very different. How, how do you sell that? Is this based on targeting a certain market? Is this what's going on in the world? How, how, how do you go about doing that? Uh, for the VGI collection, as an example, we're gonna try to have a different branding, and we're gonna we're gonna target a different kind of customer. It's more niche, but I think there's consumers that are really uh, with their value, they're ready to pay more. So we're gonna do a really small collection, and it's a, a test that we're gonna do and see if there's more consumers open. To pay more, we're gonna offer more product in that in that range, uh, right price range. Sorry, but um, yeah, I think it's like for nylon, uh, the the collection that we're launching, it's really good price range. We're really able to be uh, aggressive with that uh, with that kind of collection, but uh, yeah, it's a challenge. It's very interesting when we're talking about price, because I have a pair of leather pants that I bought years ago, because obviously they're durable. They last a long time. That was, don't tell my husband this, but they were $1,500. And... And I have um, a pair of vegan leather pants that were $100. And out of the two, um, the vegan leather is so comfortable. It seems like um, there's no option for me. You know, one, I, I, I appreciate the sustainability and I appreciate that we're not using animals. But why do you think there is such a great gap right now? A do you think gap. the leather is going to come down to be able to compete For with sure. the vegan? Okay. For sure. I think that it's, leather is going to be more luxury if the brand, the really big brand, the luxury one, they're going to keep the leather. But 
I think that it's going to be less popular and definitely there's a lot of brands now that are doing vegan leather, more sustainable, and people are more aware because at, uh, just before there was a bad reputation with the pew leather, vegan leather, yes. like more less plastic. quality yeah plastic so i mean now I think- melissa i have to say to you i when all this um you know the new plastic vegan came out i was wearing a pair of pants and it was like i was in it my legs were in a sauna i was like i, <laughs> yeah. I can't do this yeah <laughs> it's yeah. changed the quality you wouldn't even know that you were wearing you know um not leather pants it's a fantastic how it's advanced Exactly. And I think that uh, more brands are going to use vegan leather, more quality, more different kind of uh, texture we're going to kind of offer, micro uh, microsuade, uh, you have a lot of different, uh, the smooth leather, the pebble leather, you have a lot of options, sapiano, yes. so all those vegan options. So I think this is really interesting and I encourage a lot of brands to uh, follow the trend. So let's talk about how you market your product, Melissa. Sure. Well, we definitely use uh, the social media to promote uh, uh, our brand with influencers. We partner with them. Uh, we really want them to like the product. So we let them choose their favorite one. And after they can, they really wear it and they talk about how practical they are. And we have a strong strategy when we do a launch. We like to tease and excite the consumers on the website, but on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And yes. when they, when we are arriving to the day of the launch, they, it's amazing how the, the, the push that we have. So they're really buying like it's, it's the day of launch are really, really busy for a launch. So do you focus most of your marketing through social media? For sure. It's really, uh, Instagram is really, really a good tool. Uh, you need to create a lot of different content. It's changing, it's changing between the years. At the beginning, it was really easy to, uh, do some sales through Instagram. Now you, you need to, uh, create more, 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 more content. Um, and TikTok is definitely the new way to uh, try to be there and create different kind of content. And there's a different type of consumer also, maybe a younger consumer. But um, yeah, we're definitely using uh, a social media to promote our brand. There's a huge untapped market, you know, from from vegan uh, products. I mean, the reality is whether that's a generational difference, whether that's a philosophical difference, whether it's somebody that woke up at, you know, 54 years old and decided, well, maybe I should be looking at something other than leather, even though that's always been, you know, to the end. How, how do you market to that? How do you get those people interested in your product and the concept of, the, of those products? I mean, it's a philosophical shift for people. You know, the people that have bought leather shoes, and, and, and leather jackets and everything for years, all of a sudden you're going to get them away from that into a vegan, sustain, potentially sustainable environment. How are you going to market to those people? I, I think it's pretty easy because people, when they saw the quality of the products and they saw like how many influencers, they use it, they like it, and the review on the website. So I think that the, with the quality, they really it's really difficult to see the difference between a real leather bag and a vegan leather bag and um, I think that it's pretty easy yeah, to have and also like you mentioned the older uh, generation that are used to, to, to use real leather and with the price point that is really accessible 
I think they just, they, they want to try. They're going to try one. Sometimes they just buy an accessory and after we can sell a bag and do upsells and we have like the Elite Squad on Facebook, a private group. It's like the biggest uh, fan that we have for Lombard. And they have like a few, sometimes it's a whole collection or they have a model, but in like all the colors since the like five, five years. So it's really uh, surprising. It's so interesting, Mike, the point you make. Because when I was a kid, I remember they came out with jelly bean shoes. I don't know if you know what they were. They were plastic shoes and they were so trendy. And I really wanted a pair and my mom would not allow me to have a pair no, you're going to wear leather shoes. You're not wearing plastic. Your feet is going to sweat. Like you're not wearing them. You will only wear leather shoes. And it's so interesting how over time the mindset has completely shifted. When my seven-year-old daughter asks me, can I buy a pair of Melissa shoes, which are plastic shoes? I'm like, yes, let's go buy Melissa's. It's so fascinating how the whole thinking has just switched around. Yeah, it, it, I, I find it fascinating in, in the sense that it's, it's, a, it's a philosophical shift. I, I'm still not sure where you go. And, and maybe this is a question, Melissa, for you is, you know, the, the high end bag manufacturers, OK, the, the real artists in the, in, the, in the fashion industry, their move away from the high quality leathers and the products, you know, when you're talking Prada bags and you're talking, you know, along that area, how much, you know, how much have they moved into the sustainable side of things? And are they capable of selling at a very high level or is this going to be a, a lower niche market on a longer term basis? It's a pretty good question. I cannot say for, and I cannot talk for them, but um, yeah, I think that even the bigger brands, they are trying to do collabs, like the new trend is to do collab between two different brands. So you can see Gucci doing a, a collab with no trace. So I think that there is this new trend that you need to collab with other brands. And this is maybe a way for them to be more sustainable or more accessible. But I think that for Lambert, we are in the right spot. And this is why we, we're following the trend. And there's definitely uh, a place for us in the rest of Canada where we, with Frank and Old, Simon. So the Frank and Old is really the philosophy is similar to us. It's really sustainable products. Uh, so this is why we want to partner with, with, with just, we don't just want to sell our bags in any kind of store. We really want to try to develop this solid relationship and collab with companies that have similar values from us. So yeah, we're going to continue in that way. It's interesting talking about very high-end brands because Hermes, you know, the very, very high-end luxury handbag brand are coming under intense criticism after um, Peter went in and secretly filmed in their alligator farms. And when I was read this, I mean, it made me cry. I I was horrified. Um, And I think they have to they have to be aware that there has to be empathy and compassion nowadays when you're producing fashion accessories, because people want to hear that. That makes a big impact on your mindset of which bag you're going to buy. For sure. And now with COVID, it's really difficult because it's been two years that we didn't visit our factory. And it, for me, it's really important that I go there, I visit, I see the production line. How is it going? Uh, so, yeah, it, it's really, really important to be there and see where are your products, what are the conditions of the human that are producing your bags. 
So this is really, really the most important thing for me. Yeah, I think the pressure on that we're going to see is, is you know, the, the, the buyers uh, and the uh, marketplace and, uh, you know, the sustainability are going to get to a point like they have in many industries in terms of coming to a head in, in fashion and what that's going to look like. So I guess that's interesting. Do you want to, Melissa, talk at all about your price points, uh, you know, where, where, you, where, where you sit in the market space? Uh, is there anything, you know, from a product perspective that you're developing now that's coming out that you want to go, hey, this is, you know, here's, here, here, here's a soft launch for you if there's something new that you want to talk about? For sure. So uh, today it's a day launch. So after, uh, after the interview, I'm going to the warehouse and below the container and doing a Facebook Live to launch a, a new collection. Um, but um, we're launching our biggest collection for spring in April. We're really excited with a lot of new texture and with the first collection in the 100% nylon recycle, as I mentioned before. And uh, yes, the price range is between 100 and 200. So it's really, really accessible for a bag that you will do like every day that is uh, sustainable. And um, we are looking for launching in October the new collection in Vigea. So it's a new material uh, made in Italy and will be sustainable. And the price point will be like around 100 more. So 100, uh, so between 200 and 200. $300. So it's the it's more high end, but I think it's still accessible for something um, really resistant. Well, I, I guess I am a guy, but I do know that the price of handbags of two hundred to three hundred dollars for a handbag is nothing. So it, you're yeah. you're certainly not you're certainly not in an expensive space. So that 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 that, that, that much I know. I have, I have a good friend who is in the handbag industry and a client for years. So yeah, I will uh, I will not admit that I know as much as I do about the handbag industry. But it 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 it, it is a fascinating one. Are you guys doing any of the the research yourselves in terms of mixing? content, uh, different uh, materials. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, we have a, a team of uh, research that are looking for all the new materials on the market. And we tested a lot of new materials by ourselves. And yes, we're doing testing for the resistance. We're doing a lot of and uh, mixing things. And uh, yeah, we want to become more trendy. And um, we are working every day to launch, like to innovate, because if you want to continue to perform in the market and stay really strong uh, in the growth and you need to become, you need to innovate. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Super excited to see the new collection and congratulations. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. And we'll be back later in the show with Melissa's one piece of advice. And joining us now to chat about startup and small business accounting payroll is Juliana Papandrea, accounting and assurance supervisor at FL Fuller Landau. And of course, we're also joined by the Mike Newton. Thanks, Orla. I will uh, uh, very happily take this segment and run with Juliana on it. So um, I think if you, if you, Juliana, if you look at our, our guest today, I mean, obviously, uh, retail stores, uh, smaller businesses, startups, uh, I know that that's something that you spend a lot of time on. Uh, what are some of your key questions and, and some of the key issues when you start up with the, a new client who's, who's just trying to get things off the ground? 
Hi, Mike. So um, I like to start by asking the client about their business so I can become familiar with it, get a more in-depth understanding. And uh, one of the most important questions is what type of industry they're in. Uh, is it product or service based? Are they wholesale, retail? Um, are they brick and mortar setup, digital storefront or a combination of both? I also like to ask them to walk me through their process from beginning to end so I can visualize the operational side of it. This gives me a better understanding of what services they may need from us. And the more the client is willing to share about the business, the easier it is for us to assess their needs. The next step is really determining what type of software would best suit their needs. And the key question is who will be taking care of the books? Uh, should they take care of the books in-house themselves or hire someone, it's really important to have someone with accounting knowledge. It saves time and money. And having an inexperienced bookkeeper can create inefficiencies and cost the company a lot of money when it comes time for year end. Another key question is how will they stay organized? Most small businesses just don't have the necessary resources or manpower to handle so many administrative tasks. And the last thing you want is to get lost in paperwork, losing or misplacing receipts. And uh, today, many softwares allow you to email your expense invoices directly into the software where it gets stored. No need to hang on to all those receipts. Everything gets streamlined in one place. And uh, there's no need for printing statements and uh, credit card bank statements and, and whatnot. So um, those are pretty much the questions I like to ask. So I, one of the complaints, obviously, for a lot of new businesses uh, really is the, shall we call it, the, uh, the, the huge amount of administration work that gets associated with, with starting up. And, and one of the areas that constantly poses a problem for people is GSTQS, they are the sales taxes associated with what they're doing. There's so many different rules, so many different conditions, um, you know, and, and, and how, how do you address that? How do you make sure that your clients have a hold on uh, their sales tax issues as, as entrepreneurs? So it's important for entrepreneurs to be aware of the types of supply categories and which one they fall under and how this will affect their sales tax reports. So there are three different categories of what we call supplies. Uh, the first category is taxable supplies, and this allows a business to both collect sales tax and claim the input tax credits on their purchases. And uh, a perfect example of this would be the sale of handbags, such as our, our guest Melissa Lambert's company. The second category is called zero rated supplies. So in this category, um, it doesn't allow a business to collect sales tax, but it does allow a business to um, to claim the input tax credits that they've, uh, that they've made on purchases in order to produce their goods. The last category is exempt supplies. This category doesn't allow for any sales tax collection, nor does it allow for the company to claim any input tax credits. And an example of this would be, for example, childcare services. As a general rule, like once you exceed $30,000 of sales in a given quarter, uh, this is when you should uh, be registering for GSTQST. You can also register if you're under the 30,000 threshold, but there are some exceptions for certain industries because, for example, taxi drivers are obliged to, to register no matter what the amount of sales are. So it depends the industry. So I guess maybe just a very quick, quick last point is, you know, payroll and deductions at source and the infamous, do I, do I employ people or do I keep them as contract workers? If you had one thing to say with dealing with payroll, what would, what, what would be that kind of decision-making process? 
Well, um, it's important to know the difference between an employee and an independent contract worker or self-employed worker. And the CRA has a huge list of questions to determine the difference. So it makes total sense if you think about it. Like you have to ask yourself, who provides the tools and equipment? Who bears the financial risk? Uh, what level of control does the worker uh, have over the employee? And uh and if you do decide to go with hiring employees and putting them on your payroll, you have to consider all the deduction at source that goes with that. Juliana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's Juliana Papandrea, Accounting and Assurance Supervisor at FL Fuller Landau. We're now going to chat with Melissa Lambert, founder of Lambert Design, with her one piece of advice. Melissa? Yeah, my piece of advice is really to keep your vision it's really important to remind you why you find a company, what is your purpose, what is your values, because it's so easy to go in so different kind of ways. So with time, so really to keep the same vision as the beginning. Thank you, Melissa, for joining us today. That's Melissa Lambert, founder of Lambert Design. You can follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Lambert Bags. Mike, next week, Dan Delmar is back and you'll be chatting with Joe Roulier, VP at Real Estate Colliers International. And also a reminder that you can subscribe to today's Entrepreneur as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, todaysentrepreneur.org for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. I'm Orla Johannes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Orla. Have a great week. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.